Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guest as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome into another episode of the Winsome Creationist. I'm here with my friend Christian, and we're going to be going through a topic today that uh, he has lots to share. I have lots to share, and it's something that's come up very recently with different controversies that have been going on in the world of creationism, and I'm excited to talk about it. So th the subject matter today is, do modern creationists give too much credit to evolutionists? And um, no worries, we're going to define all of our terms. Uh, but first, I would like you to meet my guest. You already know who I am, so I'm going to turn it over to Christian, let him uh, introduce himself and a little bit about the work he's got going on and, and what he's into, and then we'll go from there. Christian? All right. Well, uh, I'm Kristen Ryan. I'm a regular writer for the New Creation blog, and I'm also a geology student the Dakota School of Mines and Technology. So I'm majoring in geology. My main areas of interest would be like rocks and fossils and things. And specifically, I'm interested in, I guess, correlating the geologic record, so the actual record of rocks formed over Earth's history with uh, biblical history. That's a really interesting area mm. of research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you're doing a lot of writing. Yes. You are, uh, you're, you're, yeah, you're in school, you're learning, but you're also uh, very, very active in the, in the creation community. We got to um, uh, sit around for four hours at uh, the uh, ICC and listen to one of the absolute masters, uh, Kurt Wise, talk about his uh, different passions and stuff. And, uh, that was fun. I love giving that guy a question. He runs for an hour and a half with it. So oh, yeah. Lots of fun. Now, do you go by Christian or Christian Ryan? Is it like a double first name thing going on here? I guess I should address my guest accurately. Yeah, um, you can call me Christian. That's fine. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. Awesome. So, um, all right. So let's get into this. So um, I, I came up with this, uh, this topic because... Um, because of the controversies and things that have come up recently in creationism, um, and this is nothing new. I mean, these things have been going on for quite some time. Um, basically, to like very briefly catch you up to speed, just like in many different areas of life and even in Christianity, um, you know, creationism tends to have factions, if you will. And, and maybe we agree on whatever, 80% of a, of a thing, but then like, for whatever reason, that last 20% among the different factions is stuff that people get really passionate about, right? And passionate to the point of, you know, name-calling and disassociation and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, that's it seems really weird. And honestly, maybe even 20%, maybe that's not even enough. It might be that we agree on like 95%. There's only 5% uh, left, and that makes it even worse. So I want to talk about this. Um, especially from the framework of what we like to do here on this podcast, which is we deal primarily in the realm of sort of model building creationism. In other words, we don't spend much time on apologetics. We mostly spend our time looking at solutions to potential 
uh, scientific problems. And as you mentioned, um, you know, how do we line up what we see in the physical world with what we see um, in the record of, of the Bible? So when I have modern creationists in mind, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. I'm kind of thinking about this this group of people that some have called the new creationists. Um, Paul Garner wrote, wrote a book by that title. And so some have sort of labeled it that way. Um, but, but basically this, this sort of movement of creationism that is focused on, um, focused on model building rather than apologetics. And I'd like for you to come in here. I mean, where do you sort of see that landscape right now? I know with some of what you want to share, um, you know, there might be some issues here dating back to creationists even hundreds of years ago. So kind of give me your thought. When, when I say modern creationists, do you agree with that? Or um, do you think these problems are, are bigger and, and longer than that? Uh, yeah, so the term young earth creationist is a relatively new term. I think I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure when we started using the term, it kind of just showed up and everybody started using it, but we can actually trace these ideas back pretty far, uh, back way back into antiquity. And even though the, you know, what we actually call ourselves has changed a lot, uh, we still have a lot of core principles that we tend to hold to, you know, six day creation week, uh, well, the week being the one day of rest, obviously, um, okay. there's a curse when Adam and Eve sin, that's when death and suffering and bloodshed amongst, uh, humans and animals comes into play. There's a global flood, uh, during which Noah's family and two of every kind of land dependent animals preserved on the dark, uh, there's the dispersion from Babel, you know, the, the basic sequence of events that we see in Genesis one through 11. But if you look back into, you know, the history of what we now call young earth creationism, there's, there's been quite a bit of variance. And I don't think that's really appreciated uh, how much our models have evolved over mm. the centuries. Uh, if you look back into the, just to pick, you know, one quick example, uh, gosh, if you look at the, like, up until the 1850s, there were a bunch of arguments amongst what were at the time called uh, scriptural theologists. And they were arguing with parts of the theological record reformed during the flood, before the flood and after the flood, kind of like what we're doing today. Uh, it was a little different in terms of where exactly they drew the boundaries. Some of them were surprisingly close to what we currently hold. Others put the flood boundary, like the flood boundary, like really high up the geologic record farther than I think any modern young creationist would. Uh, and there's also kind of a discussion back in those days regarding when some of those lower rock layers were formed, like where we start seeing rocks without fossils, at least we've discovered some fossils in them now, but at the time there were no fossils. Right. And even some of the ones, some of the lower layers with fossils, there was debate whether or not those were formed during creation week. Did these count as animal in the sense that they you know must be created on day five that was that, that was a discussion that was happening that that was happening at that time mm. so amongst this this the time where we've had you know young earth creationism quote unquote there has been disagreement so disagreement's not really anything new but i think it's it's, it's an interesting aspect of any type of model development if you track if you track it down through its history, 
the core elements may still be there, but there's going to be a lot of change around that. I think it's an important part of any model of creation. Yeah. You, you know, I, I wonder if, um, based on what you just said, if there's a, uh, if there's a corollary, you know, we're discussing do modern creationists give too much credit to evolutionists, but uh, you got to wonder almost if there's a, if there's a, if there's a whole subject matter around evolutionists, not giving too much credit to creationists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I even, I even think about, uh, when I first got into apologetics and I, like, honestly, I, I mean, I have been a Christian for a long time. Um, but I really only study, uh, started studying theology and apologetics and creationism and, and, and that stuff. Um, I first started studying it, like being introduced to it probably 2014, 2015. And, um, and I didn't really, really dive in until probably 2016 or 17. And I was shocked in the beginning to find out that there were people who held to old earth creationism of any kind. Now it's right. I mean, it's accelerated in the last seven years or so. Um, yeah. a, an almost resurgence of belief that it's okay. Um, Maybe not resurgence. Maybe it's maybe it's even the first in in history. Um, um, widespread acceptance among even lay pastors and 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 um, you know just lay people in the church, um, who yeah like believing that you can accept the Bible straightforwardly. It's God's word, inerrant, infallible, et cetera, et cetera, and still believe in things like you know old age creationism and. I was just, I was really fascinated when I started listening to some of these things and engaging with these materials, um, having read and studied about creationism and not even an excessive amount, I would say at that point. I mean, I was still like, I probably hadn't read a journal article at that point. I was probably still reading even popular level books on from young earth creationists. And it was interesting to hear people who espoused old earth creationism, um, you know, pointing to, to models that creationists had abandoned 15 to 20 years prior, right? Still criticizing creationists on uh, views like light created in transit, um, you know, the ice canopy theory, uh, vapor canopy theory, and, and such the like. It's, it's really, and even today, it's, it's still not terribly uncommon to uh to hear those criticisms even though those are not criticisms that um uh that most young earth creationists hold to at all and so i I don't i don't think in general creationists are given enough credit for the advancements that they have made um in in the in the previous decades does that sound right yeah yeah i think a a lot of times i find that critics and creationists really read our literature or if they do they read like the super easily accessible stuff um, right i won't name any names but fair enough i don't know it's just like there's some type of attraction to the really easy debunk stuff and like hey you have scholarly literature read that please yeah well right and uh it doesn't you know this is my criticism this is another tangent but this is my criticism of um you know uh youtubers and such you know like there's a recent um 
I mean, it's all public. So, I mean, I'm just, I'll, I'll, I'll name names. Um, uh, Gavin Ortland, you know, recently um, has been reacting to a, uh, a Ken Ham um, interview and has had some things to say about it. And um, what can I say? Ken Ham gets clicks, you know? And so, uh, and, and it's not as though everything Ken Ham says is incorrect. That's not what I mean to say at all. Um, you know, certainly, uh, he he does accurately represent a lot of a lot of what you know young earth creationist consensus and that's fine um but again that doesn't mean that he's maybe the best in terms of a a sound argument for any given view that we hold and so if you're going to interact with the reasons for the view um then you should probably interact with somebody who has articulated the best case for the view instead of chasing clicks that's my opinion Right, right. Like, yeah. Am I going to go after someone like um, Aaron Roth, who probably hasn't even heard of most creationist journals? Or, um, right. I'll, I'll do a shout out to Build Up. I, I actually enjoy his content because yes. he actually engages with literature. And that's what feedback is supposed to do, right? Like, we're supposed yeah. to, it, it's to provide us with things to think about and further research. I don't get that from Aaron Raw at all. Uh, Agreed. He hasn't picked up a creationist journal since the 16th. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great example, right? I mean, none of us are perfect, but I would certainly put Joel in the camp of this guy is studied. Generally speaking, he's gracious. And, you know, it's like he, he actually keeps up with the modern literature and can talk intelligently about it. And so um, it's respectful, informed disagreement for the most part. Yes. And that 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 is certainly to be um appreciated so yeah, like, i don't have to i don't have to not only debunk what you said but also give you an update on what we currently believe we can just get right to the conversation mm-hmm. yeah exactly and uh that's important right so okay this is maybe a, even a good transition into sort of the next thought and question um because uh again joel does spend uh time interacting with um people a lot that I would put in this camp of modern creationists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, talking about their views. And there are uh, some of them who uh, start to make claims that some people claim sounds like evolution. And um, if, if you, like, I, I kind of want to turn it over to you as quickly as possible here. I don't know how much context you need me to set up. I think you sort of know where I'm going with this. But in general, uh, right, there are sometimes when we're doing uh, baromenology and, and just biology in general is a, f- is a field where I see this happening a lot, um, where there are these claims made that you're capitulating to evolutionists and you're not doing enough of your own research, et cetera. Um, so kind of take me into that world and let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I think an important thing to uh, remember when we're talking about they're dealing with uh, universal common ancestry or separate ancestry found in created kinds is that we're we're studying the same universe here so even though we're coming this uh, the data with different paradigms you know either a biblical or young earth paradigm or a conventional old earth realistic paradigm we will arrive at different conclusions but we're still studying the same universe. We're still looking at the, we're pulling from the same body of data. So sometimes 
our conclusions are going to line up. And I think I... the history of how we discovered that species can change is really a good demonstration of that. Uh, if you go back to the super early days, I don't know, just antiquity, um, we didn't we didn't really think too much about whether or not species can change uh, because we weren't studying the natural world. Right. But over time, people began to realize, hey, you know, we see, we, we tend to see that species are pretty stable, you know, like a zebra doesn't give birth to a penguin one day. <laughs> so usually pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. And for, if you look back into like the time of the ancient Greeks, you know, they thought that hybridization could bring forth new species. So like you have one species of the species that can reproduce and make a new species. That was a thing. Uh, but then you had species fixity come about a little bit from Greek, Greek philosophy, but also as time went on, a lot of Christians kind of incorporated that into scripture. Oh yes, this is exactly what scripture teaches. It doesn't, but that was the idea at the time. And then we discovered that that really, this, this idea of speaking fixity really doesn't work. It doesn't explain a lot of the things that we see. Uh, really, one of my favorite examples is a guy named Jose de Acosta. He was a Jesuit missionary and explorer. And in the 1500s, he was coming over from Europe into the New World. And he found all of these strange animals that he had never seen. No, nobody in the old world had ever seen a llama or an alpaca mm-hmm. or a toucan or the people who were here. How did they get here? Um, and an interesting thing about Jose de Acosta is he did believe in a global flood. So he thought, you know, everything was wiped out. If that's the case, why are there people in the Americas? Why, yeah. how can the animals get here? And these animals aren't in the old world. What's the deal with that? So this isn't really helpful uh, scenario for the species fixity hypothesis because how did they get here, right? And, and why are these species only here? So, as and, and maybe maybe define species fixity a, a little bit to, for the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so species fixity is basically the idea that species cannot change. And I want to differentiate that from the ancient Greek idea that species were. Or I guess not just Greek. It was a pretty, it's pretty widespread in the Western world at the time that species were stable, but they could produce new species through hybridization, like I mentioned. Uh, I believe Aristotle was one of the guys behind this. He thought, you know, in like African water holes, you get two species coming together to drink and they might reproduce and create a new species. So they thought they were stable. They didn't think they were fixed until uh, about the time we were discovering that uh, spontaneous generation, which is another model. I won't. Yeah. If I get into the rep- the reputation behind spontaneous generation was kind of what led to species fixity. Uh, uh, flies the w- flies don't come from rotten meat. Mice don't come from dirty hay bales. Like mice give birth to mice, flies give birth to flies. So one species only gives birth to members of the same species, and you can continue that line down the generations. And so that gave rise to the idea of species fixity, and that took over the scientific community. And that was very, very much against 
any notion that could change. So therefore, that's why people like Jose Acosta were really confused. Right. So when he came to the new world, as any, anyone who's interested in natural history, he had several hypotheses that he put forward. One of them was that species in the new world were actually descended from the ones in the old world. So they actually came to the Americas and became new species. He wasn't super sold with that because there's a lot of, there's a lot of species here in North America that are really distinct from the ones in the old world. But it's interesting that he was thinking about that as one idea. Uh, Another idea he came up with that he thought was more plausible is that there was some kind of a land bridge between the old world and the new world. Animals simply just walked from the ark, and as they multiplied and spread on the planet, they some of them ended up in the Americas. And funny thing is, um, there's actually a number of animal groups that that seems to be how they got here. So he was yeah, way ahead of the cool. curve in in both terms of how animals could disperse across the planet, but also what are, what what are the limits of how much a species can can they turn into new species. These were ideas he was discussing in the 1500s, way before Charles Darwin. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. So, um, right, because, because here we're talking about giving too much credit to the evolutionist, and yet, you know, we were asking a lot of these questions hundreds of years, right, before, as people concerned about looking at the natural world and thinking about how it fits into biblical history, right? So that's really fascinating. So when we, um, just to, to use an archetypal example, and there are lots of individual little examples that, that we could point out, um, but let, let's kind of transition to this. So, um, Let's take the issue of, of, of Kurt Wise, uh, Dr. Wise, and he, I don't even, I don't even know the best way to, to, to couch this, so you, you probably have a better idea of it than me, but, but he holds some controversial ideas, for example, about the nature of whales. Um, one, one more example um, might be um, Todd, Todd Wood's, you know, clustering work done in baromenology. Mm-hmm. Where there seems to be some cases where it's like, yeah, this clearly looks like, um, you know, a uh, human or ape, but it's like, by all other indications, it's not. Uh, maybe go into some of those sort of ideas and and ju- and just let's think about, like, or I, I, again, I'm, I know I'm doing a lot of setup here, but I, I think it's important. Um, we often talk about um, the issue of. The, the animals that came off of the ark and like how how quickly those forms which we sort of understand today to be um in many cases very unlike uh, a lot of the modern forms that we have today it seems like we need a lot of change to happen in a little bit of time and so doesn't are, are we giving in that sense too much credit to evolutionists are are we are we saying that some sort of evolution happened are we are we are we saying are we you know are we looking at um uh are we looking at fossils that we look at and we say yeah these these seem to be transitional fossils 
how do we explain those? Should shouldn't we just be saying transitional fossils don't exist or or whatever? You know what I mean? Like like that that mindset where we've had for many many years. Instead of instead of saying no, like these are real things. Um, instead, let's think about a hypothesis like the floating forest hypothesis that sort of explains how these things might have existed. Um, take us through some of that. Yeah. So I guess to kind of pick up from your example with um, Kurt Wise and Todd Wood. I think what we have to kind of going back to my original point, we are living in the same world. So sometimes our conclusions will differ from our older evolutionary colleague, but sometimes they'll converge. And this is kind of one of my pet peeves with the, I guess, a lot of the modern younger creationist perspective is to kind of just poke as many holes in evolution as possible. And somehow that proves we're right. Yeah. I think that's very unhelpful because maybe you're both wrong. So I think right. a better approach is to actually, hey, let's look at the data. And that'll be for, for us, that's scriptural data and scientific data. Let's see what the best interpretation of that data really And that's why I really, really appreciate Kurt Wise and Todd Witt's perspectives. They're not just, you know, haphazardly saying, oh, let's, uh, that's, that, that, that's just a little bit of change. So that's probably fine. That's too much change. That's evolution, blah, blah. (laughs) They're actually going through and posing hypotheses and then testing them based on, uh, what we see in scripture regarding what these, I guess the natural history of these organisms were and how much is possible. And I think that's probably the best approach moving forward. Yeah, I mean, in one sense, it seems really odd to me that it's that it's that it's controversial, right? In other words, yeah. because very clearly we are looking at the same uh, world. Many mm-hmm. of the I'll just use the word so that because I think people will know what I mean, even though I wouldn't necessarily like to use this terminology, if you will, the fundamentalist creationists will often. Uh, and for anyone listening on audio, I gave uh, heavy air quotes there. Okay, so the fundamentalist creationists will very often point to this fact that we're looking at data and data must be interpreted through a lens. And yet it seems like, especially for certain organizations, I think at this point it's pretty well known that Answers in Genesis has put out a very long series of articles specifically addressing people that they call YEEs, Young Earth Evolutionists, um, you know, uh, sort of criticizing them for uh, my understanding of it is basically landing on, you know, a, a different, a, a differing side of the issue on some of that 5% stuff that we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier. And it seems really weird that if what we're doing is science, uh, that we're drawing those sort of boundaries because I thought with science, we were sort of supposed to be discovering and like right finding new things and and sort of trying to explain those right yeah and i think i think um paleontologist leonard brand has a really really good perspective on this uh, in his book faith reason and earth history i think is yeah that sounds right i think that's correct yeah so he he's a practicing scientist obviously so this is very important to him but what he likes to do is he'll separate scriptural studies scientific studies 
And within, because each of those fields, while yes, are related, they're still different. We have different ways of testing ideas. We don't just, in, in either field, we don't just, oh, well, this is first idea that came to mind, therefore it's true. Well, no. each field of study requires making observations, coming up with ideas to test, and then seeing if those ideas hold up against additional evidence. Yeah. So I, this is interesting. So I've actually had that book for a very long time and for some reason have still not read it. I don't know why. I need to read it. Um, I, I'm curious, and this might be a rabbit hole, but um, anyway, here we go. Um, I'm curious because I like that approach, right? I I think um, this is something that I appreciate about uh, William Lane Craig, for example, a pretty pretty well known um, philosopher and scholar, uh, and he makes a big deal out of this, out of um, studying theology and studying philosophy and studying science as separate disciplines with their own methodologies coming to sort of independent conclusions. And then, you know, when you're trying to do something, say, like a philosophical theology, well, then what you're trying to do is sort of integrate what you yes. learn from these different fields together. And that makes sense. But now, having not read uh, Brand's book, I I'm, I'm interested to, uh, to hear that uh, about it because we often get this claim that there would be no reason to be a young earth creationist apart from the Bible. Now, I don't know how Brand lands on that. He might not even land somewhere specific on that. And maybe you don't even have any thoughts about it. I, I don't know. But I do think it's interesting that a young earth creationist researcher takes that position. Uh, because, yeah, because many people would say that the only reason you ever come to the conclusion of young earth is, is the Bible. And I also happen to know a few very intelligent um creationists who sort of also make that claim who who say that that they're creationists because of the science um not necessarily because of of the bible and i uh at the same time many modern creationists um and i've done this in the past as well and i probably still do it today um whether intentional or not uh will sort of give credence to this idea that you only get the idea of a young earth from the Bible, or at least you wouldn't necessarily be looking for those ideas if it weren't for the Bible. Um, and then uh, I know I'm going in a lot of directions here, but then even in Todd Wood's book, The Quest, you know, he at least makes the point where, okay, I can see how if you didn't have the Bible, if you didn't, if you weren't working from the framework of thousands of years of earth history, six day creation, et cetera. Um, he's like, I could see how somebody could take this data and interpret it as a series of long ages, et cetera. So I really find that interesting. Yeah. And the, I guess the, the crux of Leonard Brand's approach is what he calls the interface. So once you have your conclusion from scriptural studies and your conclusion from scientific studies, you can actually bring those together and compare them. And sometimes they actually agree with each other pretty well. Other times you may have to uh, do some more work in both fields. He sees uh, scriptural studies and scientific studies as both being sources for ideas that we can test. We don't have to view them in isolation. Right. We don't just have to say, oh, I just 
believe the Bible and that's it. I don't care what anything else says. My interpretation of the Bible and, that, and that's it. That's not really right. how he sees it. We need to overlap them. And that is the way we get a fully integrated approach of how we can understand not only scripture, but I guess earth history in general. But I really appreciate his approach. Yeah, and that's interesting. I think that that makes a lot of sense when you consider um because he was he was correct me if i'm wrong the one who who did those studies on um the uh the formation is totally slipping my mind but basically where he, he found the underwater um you know what i'm talking about help me out the footprints the underwater uh footprints. the coconino sandstone yeah of course yes coconino sandstone, yes um where yeah i mean he sort of uh had the question to ask right about the flood um yes. And it's like this was a this was an area where maybe if you didn't have the biblical data of the flood to ask the question of how were these things truly formed, maybe you would have come to the, you know, sort of prevailing secularist understanding right. of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, like if the point he brings up is because of your paradigm, you will be looking for certain types of data and you might not notice data that you're not looking for because it's not part of your paradigm. For yeah. years, everybody just saw these footprints and, and some of the other features in the you know, sandstone as well. And they just thought, oh, you know, it's, it's a desert. We'll leave it at that. And nobody investigated further except you know, scientists who, they, they look at the Coconino sandstone and they're like, you know, based on the size and the scale and the thickness of this posit, it probably formed during the flood, even though a conventional scientists would argue that it's formed in a desert. So because of that, we're able to uh, develop our own hypotheses and then test them yeah. and see what conclusions we get. And yeah, lo and behold, yeah. Um, turns out it's actually... The evidence seems to be very supportive of having the uh, Coconino sandstone having been formed underwater. That's very interesting. And I, you know, I, I think about, it doesn't always work that way, uh, right? So I, th I think about, um, um, it's been a long day, so for some reason my, my mind is slipping on some of the specifics on, on some of this stuff. But mm -hmm. I, I think about one of the recent problems that um, uh, Dr. Wise discovered was those big, um, uh, um, was it the, you know, maybe I'm thinking of something different. I might've been thinking about Todd Wood and the dinosaur eggs, but, but, but basically there are things in the flood rocks. We interpret them to be flood rocks that really shouldn't be in the, the flood rocks. If there yeah, sure. was a, if there was a flood, right. There's lots of those things. I don't know if it's stromatolites. I don't know if that's one of the issues that, there. That, that's, that's, just... that's one that, uh, yeah. Colson likes to bring up a lot. That, okay. That's yeah. Area of research. Gotcha. Interesting. Right. So yeah, so the the stromatolites, um, I think there's some um, uh, some fossilized like dinosaur eggs or something in in, in some of oh, those yeah. that I think Todd would mention. And so right, so when we're dealing with issues like that, it's like, yeah, like sometimes our paradigm uh, asks us to ask questions of things that don't always play out in our favor. So okay, the Coconino, that was a win. Um, you know, some of these other ones are like still an open question. Right. Uh, the, the still an open question today on the very best flood model, I think, that we have is what do we do with all of the heat? Right. That's still one of the biggest issues on the on the current, you know. And so it's not. But see, whereas some people look at that and they, they, they count that as a criticism, uh, 
to me, isn't that just science? Aren't, aren't we just doing science now? Yeah, yeah. And actually, if you look at a lot of the models that the conventional view holds today, if you look in their history, you'll find that they were originally rejected because of major scientific problems. In fact, I was, uh, I'll, I'll pull a little bit from my uh, geology class. Uh, just last week, I believe, we were talking about the history of plate tectonics. And that idea goes back really far. Some of the first people who were talking about uh, this idea that continents move, uh, this was back in the 1500s, people who were making maps, they saw South America and Africa. And they're like, <laughs> and, and, and this, this is a really crazy part. Yeah. So there, there was another individual, and this is going to be, this is really blow your mind. Um, his name was Antonio Snyder Pellegrini and he published, he was, he was a, um, he was another map maker and he published a book in 1859, I believe. And yeah, he also, he, not only did he notice the shape of the continents and all that, but he argued that the continent broke apart during the flood. And right. nobody really paid attention to that. This was the same year Origin of Species was published. So that's what everybody was talking about. So yeah. this idea has been around for a long time. And it Isn't didn't... that fascinating? Yeah, exactly. And it didn't really get a whole lot of attention. Oh, Alfred Wegener proposed the idea to the scientific community in 1912. His idea was called the continental drift. And one of the major problems with his model, the reason why nobody accepted it was because even though he had lots of evidence in his favor, shape of the continents, um, fossil distribution, we can, we can map them across continents, even though they're not connected today, mountain ranges, all that. Um, one of the major problems he had was a mechanism. He didn't really have a good idea of what the mechanism was. So he thought maybe it has something to do with tides or something. So maybe tidal forces are slowly pulling the continents. And they're, the continents are kind of dredging their way through the sea floor, kind of like a ship goes through a bunch of uh, ice flows. Um, that idea wasn't too popular uh, because nobody was convinced of his mechanism. So he's like, oh, this, this idea is ridiculous. Uh, until around the 1950s and 60s or so, when we started mapping the sea floor and we noticed hey, there's these uh, mid-ocean ridges that also kind of match the continent outlines a little bit. And eventually was, it was a more, more kind of encouraged more study to be done. And they realized that the mechanism, that there was a mechanism for moving the continents. And that was uh, seafloor spreading and convection underneath the Earth's crust and the mantle and all that. But I guess my main point in bringing that up is there was evidence for the idea that the continents moved and the fact that there was a problem with it did not mean it was false. So to bring this back to the heat problem, yes, it is a problem. I do not have the answer, but that's not the only data point that we have to look at. We have other data that seems suggestive of a actual catastrophic global flood. There's a lot of observations that a global flood explains and the conventional model does not explain very well. So yeah, that is a wonderful area for further research, but it's not the only factor. 
Yeah. And it's and it's not some nail in the coffin. Yeah. It's exactly. you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, we still get to ask these questions. And so yeah. um with that, because I want to move on to, to another sort of uh tangential uh concern here with this stuff. Um so let's ask like I'm gonna ask a very, very direct question. So is the AIG series correct or incorrect, right? Do we do we have do we have young earth evolutionists here or no? Well, I guess that depends on how you define evolution, right? Because if you if you look up your standard dictionary definition, it's a change in allele frequencies or a change or a change in the population over time, or simply change over time. If that's the case, we're all young earth evolutionists. Um, but yeah, um, I guess what the AIG series is really trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, there are these supposed young earth creationists who are bringing in these false evolutionary ideas into creationism. But again, a, a lot of bees are kind of in that 5% of disagreement you were talking about. And so yeah. I don't think it's fair to label people that, because the idea of evolution that AIG is obviously talking about is universal common ancestry. That is not what is being argued at all. Yeah. So I think yeah, necessary. Yeah, and it's very, it's very much not fair right. when everybody's, you know, we're all on the same page here. We we yeah. all know that we're not talking about universal common ancestry, right. In that context, right? Um, yeah, it's like, a, a little horse turning into a big horse does not mean universal common ancestry. Mm -hmm. and, and so here's a, here's another one that I know you are um, intimately uh, passionate about and studied in. So I'll give you an opportunity to talk about this a little bit. Uh, but even to this day, there are many creationists who still uh, deny uh, that uh, we have feathered dinosaurs, right? And they, the the basis of this, it's it's so interesting. It's so interesting when uh, when one's denial of a thing plays into popular misunderstandings about a thing, right? And so and so, for example. The, uh, the reaction to this issue of feathered dinosaurs, which you're way, you know, way more qualified to talk about than I am, so I'm just going to make this this brief point. But like, the reaction to feathered dinosaurs because of the evolutionary narrative of dinosaurs turning into birds, the reaction against that is arguably a tacit acceptance of that narrative that if we have feathered dinosaurs, then that means dinosaurs turned into birds. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here because you have literally been writing about this and, and I have not. But my take on the issue is, couldn't we just have multiple kinds of animals that have feathers? And it turns out there were some dinosaurs that sort of did. Now, I, I, that's an oversimplification. I know it's a little bit more controversial than that. But maybe a way to, to, turn, to toss it over to you, maybe a way to, to, to express this would be like, Okay, okay, Christian, give me your best defense. As a creationist who believes in feathered dinosaurs, why are you not then a young earth evolutionist? Well, I think it kind of goes back to Leonard Brand's uh, model of interface, right? Where you have okay. scriptural studies, you have scientific studies, and then you have where you bring them together, which is you know, the interface or the integration of them. And for a long time, the argument was amongst creationists that dinosaurs didn't have feathers uh, because there was no evidence for it. And to be fair, back in the early 90s, even kind of into the late 90s, 
There wasn't. So, all right. I'll give you that. But as we've continued to learn more about the diversity of dinosaurs and their skin coverings, we found there seems to be really good evidence for feathered dinosaurs. We find fossils of animals that we would otherwise just call dinosaurs. They have a jaw full of sharp teeth. They have a long bony tail. They have the uh, that little hole in the hip socket, the perforated acetabulum. Those are all typical theropod meat-eating dinosaur features. So, you know, yeah. the dinosaur, right? And some of these we find with feathers now. And so then that's an interesting question. Does that mean that birds evolved from non-avian dinosaurs? Or is this, does, does the fact that uh, dinosaurs have feathers, is that contrary to scripture? And this is a good opportunity to look back at scripture and see if our understanding is correct. So if we look at what the creation account is talking about, uh, birds were created on day five of creation week and land-dwelling dinosaurs were created on day six. So, oh, so these are, uh, these are created on different days, so they can't be similar. Well, you have bats. Bats, everyone agrees, are mammals. They have hair. They have the, uh, the brain structure of a typical mammal. They have three bones in the inner ear, like every other mammal. So these are mammals. And they can fly. And that's okay. So yeah. We're dealing with two different types of classification here. So if you actually look yeah. at the, what the creation account is talking about, just saying God made flying creatures on day five. He made land creatures on day six. Sometimes in our modern classification system, there's some overlap, but that's not, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, there's any evolution, there's any, there's any shared common ancestry between the two groups. And then we can actually take this back to the um, scientific side of the spectrum. Okay. From scripture, we can hypothesize that God made different kinds of flying creatures, different kinds of land creatures. And then most dinosaurs are land animals. We would not, uh, they, they were created on a different day. Therefore, it's probably multiple created kinds. Birds belong to one set of created kinds. So it's belong to another set of created kinds. Uh, birds or itself are not created kinds, but each contain a large variety of created kinds. Then we can turn to uh, barmanology, the study of created kinds, mm-hmm. and test that hypothesis. And, well, we've done that and that does seem to be the case so now we actually have a better picture of the original diversity that god created the world with and i that's cool 100 percent, and i'm glad you went there because uh if you didn't i was going to um it's it's perfect because barominology can help us to ask and answer those questions mm-hmm. in both the scientific and the biblical realms right biblically yes. we can we can look at a, I would say a, um, this is, it's, it's kind of a beautiful example, right? You can correct me if I'm using some of this terminology wrong, but I, I don't think I am. Um, in one sense, you have uh, a, a discontinuity in the sense that birds and dinosaurs were created on different days, right? That's a data point of discontinuity. Um, then you might have a data point 
of uh, of continuity, uh, in a sense, right? Where you've got animals that were created on different days that both happen to have feathers. And so in a in a framework where you have only continuity, um, you might rearrange things and you might be looking for data patterns that suggest that modern birds descended from dinosaurs and those feathers would help with that. But you're fundamentally missing the data point of discontinuity of which there are many others, right? We're yes. not just talking about the Bible. I don't, I don't want to muddy that example. There are many other elements of discontinuity between birds and dinosaurs, but at the very least you've got the biblical element of discontinuity that places them on separate days. And then, so can you do baromenology to then look at both the continuity and the discontinuity and put everything in its proper place. And as you suggested, yes, we can do that. Yeah. And, and so yeah. And we do that. Yeah. And, and the cool part is you don't have to be a young appreciatist to do this. Anybody can download these data sets and do the statistical analyses to see that there yeah. are discontinuities here. So yeah. oh, just, you, you just believe the Bible because the Bible says that. Well, no, yeah. the Bible says it. I can go out and text it. And hey, it actually lines up. Cool. Right. Awesome. Right. Very good. So we're, 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 we're wrapping up here. We're coming to the end of our time, but I, I do want to, um, and this led perfectly into sort of the final big question that I want to pose to you, um, uh, which is the idea of, of the data. So both in the AIG article, in some private discussions that I've had, um, there are IG, I, I, IAG articles, I should say, um, there were some questions about, about the data itself, right? So we all agree. We all agree that we're looking at um, the same data, if you will. And then we're looking at different interpretations. And there's a, a broad spectrum of interpretations for the same amount of data. Um, however, there also is some disagreement, it seems, at the data level. And, and so, again, I, I could be putting this wrong, so feel free to correct any faulty terminology if I, if I do. But it seems to me that the argument on the side of some creationists is that even the um, nuances of the data collection process are, are influenced by worldview. And so when a creationist uses uh, data that evolutionists have uh, collected, there are arguments that in some cases creationists are actually starting to work with data that is faulty from the get-go. Um, data sets and things like that. And, and so we should be doing all of our own work together, all of our own data. Now, of course, there are immense challenges to that, right? Okay. Um, I think, practically speaking, we all understand how much more time and money and resource intensive it would be for creationists to do all of their own data collection. So, I mean, I guess the question is, do you, do you in your opinion, I mean, is it reasonable that we use some of this data collected by evolutionists to... Uh, create our own interpretations? Are there checks and balances that we do, uh, at least in some cases, to make sure that that data is accurate? What are your general thoughts on that problem? Well, I think um, the sharing of data is important to all scientists, not just creation scientists. All scientists do it. Um, so there's a bit of a trust factor in there, but there's also the fact that there's not really that many creation scientists compared to 
all of the work that needs to be done in order to have a the most comprehensive view on Earth history. That's an understatement, so, probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, just I'll I'll take the uh, the rate project was by creation scientists. Sure, we did collect samples to test, but we did not do the actual testing. Them to other individuals who are not creationists mm -hmm. to test. So, do we not? On those, even if they do kind of work in our favor, right? That's, yeah, yeah. Like we 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 don't have the people or resources to do everything, and that's the case with right. any field, regardless of whether or not you're a creationist. So that's just the yeah. thing you have to deal with. And also, I think it's important to acknowledge that if you think that there is a bias in the data, you need to actually demonstrate that there's a bias because simply saying correct. Automatically mean there's a bias there, or at least mm -hmm. one that's that would impact point. the research. And, and that's another interesting question we can test. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think part of my concern there is that, you know, again in these cases, gosh, they all. I mean, I, there might be some exceptions to this, but for the most part, uh, these are things that are landing in that five percent. Right, yes. so it doesn't affect, it doesn't affect the ninety five percent that we all agree on, and so um, it it certainly doesn't warrant heading down the road of character assassination, which in some cases has happened in creationism, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So that's a it's a very unfortunate sort of uh, fruit of that. So, um, well, man, this has been incredibly educational. I think uh, I think everybody will really really enjoy it. Um, I, I guess uh, sort of a parting salvo here. Um, you know, you are you are uh, one of those uh, young guys who is passionate about this stuff. And there is a, um, you know, we need a lot more of you. We need like so many more Christians. Um, it's crazy. And we need people who are even up and coming even below the ranks of the of, of the Christians out there and more and more people. So I guess as a as a parting salvo, I would ask a two part question. Number one. Um, you know, where do we go from here? Or just what encouragement sort of do you have to other people who are looking to go into this stuff? And specifically, maybe what would you say? How 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 should they think? Right? How should how should they think as it relates to coming into um, into creationism? What sort of mindset would you encourage them to have? And then the second part would just be uh, if if anyone if if you're okay with people contacting you, maybe for questions or something, or you want to provide social media or just some way for people to get in touch with you. That would be, that would be cool. Uh, you have some uh, personal projects you're working on. I don't know how much you want to divulge. And so you're welcome to talk about as much of that as you want to. All right. Um, I guess, let's see, I guess, uh, in terms, in terms of uh, final thoughts, I would just suggest that it's really important to differentiate data and interpretation of the data. I, I see those two conflated all the time not only in conventional evolutionary circles, but also creationist circles as well. And if you can differentiate the two, I think that's a really big step in the right direction, regardless of whether or not you're a creationist. Uh, so, yeah, and I would also, like my other suggestion would be just think outside the box. Uh, unlike the conventional perspective, which is, they generally try to stay in, in the confines of, you know, what we can observe happening today, uh, like, you know, modern storms or modern deviation rates and all that. But 
um, given our perspective, I think we kind of need to think outside the box. We need to be creative and look at alternative ideas that we can test and see where that leads us. And if, even if it doesn't give us the exact answer that we want, that demonstrates that Eric Christianism is true and everything else is false. Um, <laughs> I still think those are all really interesting conclusions to have. And who knows, maybe that's a step toward what the actual answer is. And I think that's a really cool journey to be on. 100%. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, so where can we find you? What are you working on? Well, uh, you can find me at the New Creation blog. If you just hit the contact button, uh, just shoot us an email and it'll, it'll get sent to me if you address to me. So you can get in touch with you that way. But uh, yeah, it's just definitely, uh, I'd recommend checking out the resources we have on there. We have a lot of really great articles that are talking about creation research that's being done right now. I just finished a series on Precambrian rocks, which is something very few creation yeah. or creation scientists have touched. So I was, I've been working on the series for two years now. Oh, I'm really excited to get it out. <laughs> so wow. yeah, check that out. Um, but yeah, just check out the new creation block. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds good. Christian, I appreciate your time, my friend. This has been really helpful. And uh, we'll certainly be getting you back on in the future to talk about all the upcoming stuff you got uh, you got going on and um, um, yeah, books and school and graduating and rocks and dinos. I mean, you're really covering it. You're really covering it all. So I'm excited for you. This is awesome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. All right, man.